Hi, this is Dave Summers, and welcome to AMA Edgewise. David Braun is the founder and CEO of Capstone Strategic Incorporated, which is located just outside of Washington, D.C. in McLean, Virginia, beautiful suburb, which he established way back in 1995. Capstone focuses on helping companies design and implement proactive strategic growth programs. His firm's clients range from family-owned businesses to Fortune 500 multinational companies, and he has more than 20 years' experience formulating growth strategies in a wide range of manufacturing and service industries. His company, Capstone, has particular expertise in assisting in acquisitions of closely held not-for-sale businesses and has completed more than a billion dollars in transactions, although the number's probably higher by this point. He's the author of a book entitled Successful Acquisitions, A Proven Plan for Strategic Growth, which is published by Amicom, a division of the American Management Association, and he's a friend. David, welcome to AMA Edgewise. Thank you. Great to be here. Good to see you again, Dave. Good to see you, too. I always like talking to you about stuff like this, and I think our audience, which is, again, primarily composed of, I would say, new managers, middle managers, aspiring leaders, people who are trying to improve their management leadership game from a knowledge and a skills perspective, as well as people who've been awesome individual contributors and now are, guess what, they have a team, they have a mission, they have a purpose, so they have to wear a different type of cloak, helmet, whatever analogy you want to use there. And they have to approach, they have to be aware of a lot of things. Mm-hmm. So with your with your patience and your forbearance, I'm going to kind of take a little bit of a, a high road on this thing, not go too down into the weeds with it, sure. but just to give us a working understanding of what's up with mergers and acquisitions and M&A. I'm going to start with some contextual questions, and you can help me with those. Now, when a mergers and acquisition specialist is, is looking at a potential acquisition, let's say from the standpoint of the, the buying organization. Now, at a high level, what types of analysis takes place? What are the four or five really big questions that a potential buyer is concerned with? Hmm. That's a great question because I think it's one that is, for many companies, especially as you describe a lot of the audience are kind of emerging managers, maybe mid to senior, senior to executive management, I, I think they don't always necessarily give that enough pause and thought. And I think the focus oftentimes is more about the deal than the first questions about the why. And so I think some of the first kind of ground, what I'll call grounding questions that people really need to be thinking about, and in particular for people that are moving up in management, is to start thinking about how they can help answer that question. Why? Why would we ever be interested in an acquisition? What what can we get out of an acquisition that we can't get otherwise? And In particular, in this environment where the world is changing very fast, customers are demanding more of what I call aggregation. You know, they want to be able to go to someone and get more services, capabilities, technologies, whatever the case may be. How do you provide that? And in many cases, you may not be able to do it all yourself. You may need to use an acquisition. And I'll use that word acquisition kind of loosely to mean a variety of structures. It could be a strategic alliance, joint venture, minority investment, majority investment. I mean, there are lots of ways of working together, but I think it all has to start with the why. Now, this is a question I've asked you before, and I love your take on it, but but Hollywood would have us believe that the bulk of mergers and acquisitions activity is merely a ruse to obtain and then split up and sell off the newly acquired firm. Mm-hmm. How accurate is this? Um. 
that's Hollywood. <laughs> so. It's dramatic, though. Come on, man, Michael yeah. Douglas. It's dramatic. Yeah, exactly. You know? It's so. It's not. That's not really reality. Let me tell you where that is real. In many, in some cases, I won't even say many cases. In some cases, that's real for the deals that you're going to hear the most about. You know, the very large transactions, the big companies. You know, the GEs of the world that are out there making these big acquisitions. Although GE has tended to be very strategic in their acquisitions, but you get the point. But the reality is, is that, you know, most acquisitions are, you know, $100 million in size from an average size standpoint, maybe a little bit more some years, maybe a little bit less other years. And it isn't this grand scheme of, you know, buying companies and then splitting the lot. It really is much more about, in some cases, you may be trimming the edges, if you will. There may be pieces of it that don't quite fit in because maybe they had parts of the business that don't really fit in with your model. But I think that a Hollywood scenario is so far from reality. <laughs> but uh, come on, you could it's so dramatic. It, you could actually call it science fiction. <laughs> <I know. laughs> it's neat. We did a podcast interview and a webcast, actually, n- not too long ago with somebody, one, one of the, the senior executives at a, at a company called TheWriter.com. And they were working with Cisco hmm. on improving and doing a, an overhaul of the language associated with how Cisco went to market and, you know, made it, made it less geeky and more customer-friendly mm-hmm. and approachable. But one of the big slides we saw there, no secret to you, is that this is, this is Cisco. I mean, they... They are like the the gods of acquisition. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? They're they're just it's amazing. Over the past you know ten fifteen years, how many uh, companies have been yeah. have been brought into that universe? Right. You know. So can I comment on that? Go please. So what's interesting is just even the way you you phrase that, right? So everybody kind of has this sense of Cisco is it like this is this big great thing? But if I told you that a company was making lots of hires. You know, like they hire, you know, a thousand employees a year. Would you be impressed? Uh, well, I think that bodes well, right? Well, okay, but let me just let me just say it's five hundred employees. But forget the number. The fact okay. that they're regularly hiring a lot yes, of employees, yes, means that they're growing, right? That's a good sign. But you wouldn't necessarily think that that's particularly unusual in terms of like that's a great talent that right. they have. Correct. Why do I bring that up? Because acquisitions for companies. It, should be for many companies like a Cisco a steady diet. Okay. So you why aren't you talking about in the conversation about how great companies are at hiring people? Right? So my point in saying that is is that companies that get good at doing this do it pretty regularly in the same way that we get pretty good at regularly hiring people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there isn't this big story about hiring people. And I think people over maybe it's the Hollywood comment that you made earlier, but I think I couldn't help it. I think Sorry. we kind of, I think we we kind of perhaps blow out of proportion a little bit the whole story about M and A in the sense that I think M and A should be a tool that companies use, much like they hire people. So in some cases they're hiring more salespeople, in other cases they're hiring more engineers. But there's always that kind of shifting and calibration of do we have the right people in the right places? Well, it's the same thing with M and A. M and A is a way that allows a company to calibrate faster than they can do it by themselves, you mm-hmm. know, in terms of hiring the right people. Mm-hmm. But it shouldn't be this big, like, wow, yeah. in that sense. It, it should be more like that's a steady tool and diet that they have. Let's stick with this idea of the, the people side of the equation. Now, are companies ever targeted for acquisition because of the quality of their human yeah, resources? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So a couple of examples of that. So that we actually have a phrase in our industry called aqua hire. So like 
we're acquiring hiring. You know, we're we're hiring talent. If you look at Yahoo, you know, one of the big strategies that they've had over the past couple of years is hiring people in particular to have mobile technology capability, mobile advertising, really sophisticated, state-of-the-art engineers. Could I go get a headhunter to hire these people and pick them off maybe one by one? Yeah, but if I can get a group of people, even 10, 15, 20 people that are used to working together, that have that kind of muscle of, of how that relationship and intellectually works well together, I think there's a lot more value in that than trying to put all of your eggs in one basket with saying, I'm going to go hire Dave Summers to be my digital expert. If I can hire a group of people and bring that combination together, I generally going to have a lower risk moving forward. Does that make sense? I, no, that's very helpful. And also, I think a, 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 on a similar conversational path, we've talked about in the past about, and I've used the example of Big Pharma, but you countered with, it's actually everybody, that many of these really large companies are in acquisition mode for research and development mm-hmm. types of efforts. Right. Yeah. And so a good example of that is look at medical devices and pharma, like you mentioned, where you know, there isn't, a, in particular, if you look at medical devices, there has not in the recent history been a, as much venture capital support as there was in the past. So venture capital would say, hey, I'm going to invest in 10 of these medical devices. All I need to do is have one be successful and we're off to the races. We haven't been getting as much of that capital going into these companies. And many of these companies, the medical device and pharma companies, are not doing as much in their own internal R&D. So we've got as an interesting kind of split here where companies are using M&A as a way to try to basically create a new model where it's not venture capital, it's not internal R&D, but let me as a corporation invest in some of these companies in more of a strategic way to hopefully get one of them to grow up and be a success for us. Exactly. You re- obviously, you're immersed in this. So, you know, again, I'm coming at it from a layman. But but do you feel that we've already seen sort of the golden age of mergers and acquisitions? Or is that just the wrong way of thinking about it? I think we may be, I won't use the word necessarily the golden age. I think we may be at the golden age of traditional acquisitions. I think what you're going to continue to see more of are these coopetition kinds of arrangements where you may have a much higher degree of mutual equity investments, where you may have a company that has an equity investment in a number of companies that in some cases it may be a competitor, in other cases it may be a supplier, but they're going to create this basket of relationships with companies because the market's demanding it. Mm -hmm. In some cases, you need to completely own some of that technology. In other cases, you need to have a relationship with someone to be the aggregator for that technology or resource or brand or whatever the case may be. So I I think you're going to actually see a lot more of this because I think there's a couple reasons I say that. One is the the knowledge of M&A, loosely called M&A, is much more expansive. It, you know, it used to be a very kind of small, elite collection of people, CEOs, CFOs, and investment bankers. That's A lot of that's been demystified, and there's a lot of middle managers that are now being tasked with, hey, find us. Mm-hmm. What, what should we be doing? Mm-hmm. Who should we be partnering with? Mm-hmm. Help us go find these folks, and then help us actually think about what would be a good relationship, sure. what's going to make the most sense. And I think you're going to see a much bigger pool of kind of not just 100% acquisition, but other kinds of relationships like minority investments and strategic sure. alliances and joint ventures. Well, I'm, I just saw something in the news related to this really big fund that Apple's putting together for, I guess, incubator mm-hmm. stuff here, North American, United States type of tech incubator right. stuff. 
Is is that sort of what you're talking about, or not, or not really? That's a little bit earlier. Stage. I find it hard. But this is an editorial comment. I find it hard that Apple's like doing good for the sake of doing good. Obviously, yeah. there's money to be made here, right? Right. Yeah. So that's a, you know I don't know all the details sure. of how that's going to flush out, but I think there's a little bit of that that's kind of like venture capital R and D type okay, investing, okay, right? Okay. So so I don't know that I don't quite put that's okay. much earlier stage. Understood. It's much earlier stage, but I think you're going to see. And we already are seeing it. Bigger companies saying, hey, look, there's a guy who's got this really niche product or niche IP that I can use in my industry. Let mm-hmm. me let me create a license with him or her. Let, let me create something. But they may also do a different relationship in another industry. So sure. I think you're going to see much more fluidity in, in that market space. So I think that's a little bit different. Okay. Okay. Earlier stage. Sure. Because there's some very different markets when you talk about early stage kind of venture capital mm-hmm. versus growing stage where more private equity sure. and maybe more mature, which is going to be more strategic. Okay. So I think you kind of have different different needs there. And just as a wrap-up question, and I'm, I recall you having fun with this last time I asked it, but what do you find to be the single most significant reason why mergers fail? Hmm. That's a great question. And I'm going to give you what may sound like a simple answer, but I think in most cases it's because – you bought the wrong company. Many times I hear people say it's because we overpaid. I don't buy into that. My belief is if you buy the right company and you overpay for it, it's just going to take you longer to get your money back, but it's still the right company. If you could underpay for the wrong company and never get your money back in some cases. So it's not just about how much you paid for it. It's really about being thoughtful and intentional about the companies that you're partnering with. I have just in my professional career, I've just not seen it where it was because the legal paperwork wasn't drawn up right. It wasn't because the valuation, you know, really wasn't quite right. It had a really a fundamental concept. It was fl- flawed from the get-go. It was flawed. For, no matter what you paid for it, it wasn't going to be the right company. And here's, let me, t- let me add a little bit more to that. What tends to happen from my experience is people get busy. And this is where, like, for middle managers, this is a kind of a flag for them. You get tasked by senior management executives. CEO says, hey, we need to move in this direction. We've got to get this capability. We need this geographic location. And it's all about speed. And so what tends to happen is you're going to go for, I, I got to get it. So I got So you go find things that maybe are for sale or easy or obvious or what we like to call on your radar screen. If you slow down a little bit and you actually give some thought to planning and thinking about who would be the right partner and certainly look at the people that we call the usual suspects on your radar Mm -hmm. screen, but actually slow down a little bit and say, who isn't on my radar screen that should be? And maybe those are better candidates. And so I think if, if we don't just react to the easy, obvious, in particular for sale opportunities, you mentioned in your opening comments about my background being with not for sale is a specialty. And I think that's part of it is, is being deliberate mm-hmm. about being with the right companies, mm-hmm. not just the ones that are available. That's a hard thing to do when you got time pressures. And I would rather you not do a deal that's bad than do a deal that's bad, if that makes sense. In other words, I'd rather you just just don't do the deal. Mm-hmm. Just walk away from that mm-hmm. because it's a lot more expensive, not just in terms of dollars, but resources sure. to be involved with the wrong company. So kind of a long-winded answer to your question, but it's it's not usually about legal or the valuation. It's usually about you didn't take the time 
to really find the right people to be in a relationship from an acquisition standpoint. We've been speaking to David Braun. He's the, uh, once again, the founder and CEO of Capstone Strategic Incorporated, and he's the author of Successful Acquisitions, A Proven Plan for Strategic Growth. Dave, fun talking to you about this stuff. Always appreciate being with you. Thanks very much. AMA webinars give you 90 minutes of focused how-to instruction and specific solutions to help you solve your most pressing work issues. Find tactical, practical courses on building work relationships, polishing your spreadsheet skills, managing your team to meet company goals, and more on our events calendar at amanet.org forward slash events. We take feedback very seriously here at the AMA. If you get a minute, you have some thoughts about this program or additional questions, just send an email to us at podcasts at amanet.org. 